Good morning. There's actually a book, Atheist Overreach. I don't want to talk to you about the book, but I ripped off the title, so I thought it was really I don't know. So I do have this podcast that's uh, broadcast every other week from Spirituality and Health magazine, Essential Conversations with Moi. But I also have a weekly podcast, which is my own, called Conversations on the Edge. And that's where today's conversation started. Because I interviewed Christian Smith, who is a sociologist, a, well, I don't know what he believes, because he really wouldn't say on the air. But he wrote this book, Atheist Overreach, and the gist of the book is that atheists can be good without God, but not really good. (laughs) So I don't know how many of you are self-identified atheists, but you should sit in the back so we can identify you and say, well, they're not really good. (laughs) I want to go through his argument and my argument against it and how it ties into uh, the principles of Unitarian Universalism. And hopefully leaves a question that we can delve more deeply into in second hour. So here's his premise. And I, and I hope I'm doing it justice. But here's his premise. Without God, and by God he means the Judeo-Christian God. Maybe the Judeo-Christian Islamic God as if they were the same God, which they're not, but we can get to that later. But the God that he believes in, in whatever way, shape, manner, or form he does, without that God, you can't love or be kind and compassionate and just to all people, let alone all creatures. Because without that God, all you have is enlightened self-interest which means that I'll be nice to John because if I'm not, then you know, we'll have a problem and I don't need the problem and so it's easier for me to be nice to him just for my own benefit. That works. That works with about, according to what I read, about 50 people. Now some scientists say you can actually have 200 friends. Not Facebook friends, but actual friends. But the more conservative number is you could have an actual friend relationship with about 50 people. And that's why originally ancient, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of years ago, tribes were very small, about 50 people. And so because I know 50 people, I want to get along with those 50 people, so it's in my best interest to be trustworthy and kind, compassionate, just toward those 50 people. But those people live in my neighborhood. What about people who live in Smyrna? I don't know anybody who lives in Maybe someone here lives in Smyrna. <clears throat> but so if I need to go farther away. You know, I don't know people who live in Kentucky. And I don't know people who live in Afghanistan. And so I have no... <coughs> I have, that's what kept me from coming here last time is still here. But I'm not contagious anymore. But I think I'll take a cough drop just to make this a little easier. Because I can't know people in Afghanistan, I really can't relate to them. And my self-interest isn't really served by them. 
That's this guy's argument. So, you know, what I do to people or what happens to people in Afghanistan is not my concern. And that's people. What happens to animals, except my own dog, I don't really care. I don't know those animals. Sorry. I don't know those animals. What happens to the rainforest? I couldn't find the rainforest on a map. If it burns down, you know, I'll wear an oxygen tank. I saw those things you can wear. They're not, they don't seem too uncomfortable. We don't have any oxygen left. We'll make some oxygen. My enlightened self-interest, Christian Smith argues, is really limited to my immediate circle of concern. But, if you believe in God, and you believe in the kind of God that says all humanity is one family, forget religion, because they don't say that, but God idea, that the God idea, God created all of us, and therefore we're all in this together, and whether I know you or not, you are born in the image of God, therefore... I'm obligated to treat you with justice and compassion, whether I know you or not, (coughs) whether it does me any good or not. Because I believe in a God who says we're all one and I am obligated to love my neighbor as myself. And then, that's Leviticus 19.18, and then a little bit later, it says to love the stranger as myself as well. Without that God, I might love my neighbor, but I'm not going to love the stranger. I'm going to fear the stranger. Because the natural response towards strangers is fear. I mean, we teach our kids that. You don't say to your kid, you know, if you're in the mall and a stranger comes up, you know, love the stranger. No. You say, get help. Run away. Later, shoot. (laughs) That's, That's the normal way of doing things. It takes a God to tell you, no, that's not right. You have to love the stranger. That's his argument. Atheists can be good among their little circle. Theists, as he understands theism, theists can be good on a global basis. And then, that's people. And then, if you believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all the creepy, crawly, winged things then you've got to love those two. Because God made all of it. And you're supposed to love your your God, and God loves all of this, so it's the opposite of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's what my God loves, I love because I love my God. Atheists can't say that. He goes into science and says, scientists can't say that. They can argue all kinds of things, but ultimately when it comes down to it, It's God that is the only foundation for a universal interspecies sense of compassion and justice. All right, you got that? That's his argument. So I don't like that argument. (laughs) Right? Because I don't believe in that God. So now what do I do? I I don't call myself an atheist. I leave that to other people, right? <laughs> I was once giving a talk at Scarrett Bennett, and after it was over, some guy came up to me and said, are you an atheist? And I said, it depends. What God are we talking about? You know? 
If you want to say Krishna's God, no, I'm an atheist. I don't think Krishna's God. If you want to say the God of the Bible's God, no, I don't. So I'm an atheist there too. But if, if you want to just say some kind of generic, maybe even contentless or content-free use of the word G-O-D, yeah, fine, I believe in God because I don't even know what that is, so I'll say I believe in it. It's better than having an argument. <laughs> but I don't believe in the God that Christian Smith says is necessary. I'm not sure he does either. because, Like I said, I couldn't pin him down. But I know I don't believe in the God that Christian Smith says is necessary. And I imagine some of you do, and many of you don't. But I don't believe that I am less capable of a universal ethic <coughs> of compassion and justice <coughs> excuse me, because I don't have that God. It doesn't make sense to me. <coughs> so then I said to him, but wait a minute. What about people who have that God, who do horrible things, not in, in, in going contrary to the word of God, but out of their love of God? How do we... Justify that. All right, how do you justify uh, the treatment of Palestinians in Israel by the religious settlers who say, you know, when they read their Bible, love the stranger? How, how do you get away with that? How do you deal with, uh, well, we just, I don't know if anyone's been following this in the in the world of Protestant evangelical Christianity, but this whole thing where Christianity Today magazine published an editorial uh, by the editor of the magazine saying that Christians cannot vote for Trump. Not because of his policies, but because his very being is an affront to God. I'm not quoting him, but that's the idea. And then another Christian magazine came out and said, that's really not Christian, and so we really have to support Trump, because he gives us what we want. And, you know, all this stuff. Same group, same God, completely different sense of ethics. One says, homophobia is fine. The other one says, no, it's not. One says, racism has its place. The other one says, no, it doesn't. And, but they're all going to point to the same text and the same God, which, of course, Every religion does, and Christians have been doing for, for centuries around major cultural issues, reading the same text in diametrically opposite ways. So I brought that kind of thing up to him. He says, well, I'm not talking, this is Christian Smith, I'm not talking about specifics. As a sociologist, I'm just saying that if you're going to love the world, you have to have a God who commands you to love the world. And that's what it comes down to. It has to be a command. As a rational human, human being, you're never going to come up with the idea of loving everyone unless you're basing it, even secretively, on revelation, that you must love everyone. So he looks at humanists and Kant and all these other people from the Enlightenment. He says, no, they got that idea. They looked for a rational humanistic explanation for something they already knew was true, but the only reason they knew it was true is because they got it from their Christian upbringing which goes back to the Bible. So, it's not the specific religion, it's the power of revelation that he's resting his argument on. Then I said, okay, what about Buddhists? Not 
Tibetan Buddhists, they have all kinds of gods. Let's just put the Tibetan Buddhists aside. Let's talk about the Buddha himself. Let's talk about the early Buddhist tradition, the Theravadan tradition, <clears throat> where they had no creator god, they had no gods at all. But they had the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The Four Noble Truths are life is intrinsically sorrowful, the suffering or sorrow of life is caused by ridiculous desires. Ridiculous desires can be ended, and therefore suffering can be ended. And then the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is, here's the eight paths uh, uh, to get you to that place of freedom from your ridiculous desires. And the first one, if I've got my numbers right, is called Right View, V-I-E-W, Right View. And Right View is the view that everything is interconnected. That's central to all Buddhist thinking, but right from the beginning. The Buddha taught that there is no separate self, that everything is, uh, what do we call it, interdependent. Interconnected with. Yeah, is that it? I I got, because I want to go to these eventually. Um, Respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part, right? Buddha came up with that. I said, so look, Buddhism is based on this philosophical view. He goes, well, that's the problem. It's just a philosophical view. It's not a revelation. So that's, okay. And here I think comes to the crux of that. Let's, for argument's sake, let's buy into the fact, buy into the idea that we cannot rationally get to a universal ethic. I mean, I I think this is wrong, but let's just go with it. The Buddha doesn't rationally get there. The Buddha, I don't know, I can't use the word revelation, but the Buddha discovers, let's say, through his meditation practice, and it's, you know, he sits for eight days in intensive meditation at the end of his preparation, but he studied for years with different yogis. So he spends a lot of his life trying to figure out what's true, not from reading scripture, not from hearing from his guru, though he did both, but ultimately from his own direct experience. It's like the Zen people say, that, that Zen provides the direct experience of reality beyond words and scripture. That's what the Buddha got. Now, they don't say revelation because there's no God revealing it to Buddha. He just sits there and he gets it. Does the Buddhist enlight- does the Buddha's enlightenment equal the revelation of God in, let's say, the Torah or other sacred text? Is it the same thing? In my mind, not to, to say they're identical, but they're different ways of articulating the same thing. Somebody has an experience of the non-duality of, of reality, of the interconnectedness and the interdependent web of all life. Somebody has that experience and then passes it on. There are two ways to pass it on. I'm going to come to that in a second. But somebody has the experience. They're either going to say, oh, I was sitting cross-legged under a tree and I got this, or 
I was talking to a bush, if you're Moses, and I got it. Or, you know, it came to me through a dream or, or something. But I had the experience, and then either I passed it on verbally or ultimately got it written down. But the original source for the interdependent web, if you're on, the, on one side of the equation, or the original source for everyone is the image and likeness of God, comes from something beyond the individual egoic self. You with me so far? You follow that? Now you can agree or disagree, but you get the idea. So I thought that was going to solve the problem on the radio show. It didn't. He, he didn't want to deal with Buddhist stuff. He saw Buddhism as a philosophy, rationally determined by the Buddha and, and subsequent Buddhist philosophers, and he discounted the ability, just on the face of it, he discounted the ability of a human being to rationally or to simply reason herself to the interdependent web of all existence, of which we are a part. He just couldn't see it. You need God. Okay. <clears throat> you know who Dennis Prager is? Are we here of Dennis Prager? Everyone else has it, but Frank. So Frank, Dennis Prager. <laughs> Frank was bold enough to say, nope. Everyone else goes, nope, but we'll let Frank handle it. <laughs> So Dennis Prager is a very conservative radio talk show host on the West Coast. And he has, he's just come out with a new Bible commentary. He's very Bible-oriented, very conservative Jewish guy. Conservative religiously, conservative politically. And he's got this statement that God, (coughs) that we have to believe. No, we have to believe that God is a man. (laughs) <laughs> you have to believe why <laughs> if I laugh you know I'm obviously not into the camp here but okay why does God have to be a man because the purpose of God who teaches a universal ethic of compassion and justice the purpose of God is to take men between the ages of 18 and 26, the most violent species on the planet, and civilize them. If God is a man, and God is just and compassionate, and you're a man, then you should be just and compassionate, because God is the bigger man. That's his argument. Now, that may speak for you, that may speak to you or not. It, it doesn't work for me either. But it's, this, it's the same kind of thinking. It doesn't mean that there is a God. In fact, Christian Smith, he, he personally believes. But he says in the book, I, I'm not saying there's a God, I'm not saying there's not a God. I'm just saying without the idea of this God, you cannot have your interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. And the ethic of universal justice and compassion for all species that comes from it. You can't have it without a God. Then Prager doubles down in that and says, you can't have it without a boy god, a male god. Because you've got crazy boys who have to be controlled and only a male god can do it. Whether, now Prager isn't going to say God is a man, for real. 
He just says, you have to believe that God is a man for real. Otherwise, young men are going to terrorize. Now, on the face of it, that's also absurd. Because you look at who the, young, who the terrorists are. And mostly, they're young men in that demographic. Whether they're the people that are attacking Jews in the Hasidic neighborhoods in New York, or the Israelis who went and killed, to forget the person's name, you know, in, in the West Bank. I mean, it's all young men who believed, I don't know about the guys in New York, but the, in general, it seems, just from you know, what I've read, that terrorists are overwhelmingly, talking about religious extremist terrorists, are overwhelmingly believers in the male God who is supposed to calm them down and instead stirs them up. So if anyone isn't thinking clearly, I think it's his believer guy. Christian Smith and Dennis Prager. But I agree, and now we're going to go to the, the principles here, but I agree with Smith, not with Prager, I think Prager was smoking something. <laughs> but I agree with Smith that reason isn't enough to figure this stuff out. So, shift from 21st century to um, Spinoza in the, sixth, in the 17th century. Spinoza, who is one of my favorite philosophers, says there are three ways of knowing stuff. Number one is tradition. You were raised in that. You believe in Santa Claus because your parents told you that Santa Claus was real. And, oh gosh, her name just went in my head. But the, the fox, she's, she's no longer there. Um, the fox commentator came out and said to the audience, it wasn't Greta, it was, she went to NBC, but then they fired her for, I, you know what, I can't, yeah, Megan, right, who said, you know, Santa Claus is white. You know, that was, she came on the, we, Santa Claus is, the Bible says so. <laughs> the Bible says so. You know, Santa Claus, I mean, the, there's no white people in the Bible, except the Romans, maybe, and they're not exactly white either. They're Italian. And Italians only became white, I think, in the 30s, in the 1930s. So, <clears throat> you have to believe in this stuff. And one way to get knowledge is through inherited belief, inherited tradition. So, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy, God. That's the weakest of the three ways that we know stuff, according to Spinoza. The second way we know stuff, according to Spinoza, is the reason. You think, you, you work it out. And he, if you look at Spinoza's work, he's very into math and geometry, and he thinks you can, you can figure out how the world works in geometric, geometric uh, order. That's, but that isn't the highest way of knowing stuff. The third and highest way of knowing things is through your own personal intuition that you are somehow hardwired to know truth with a capital T. And in Spinoza, it's not difficult to figure out how, because everything from Spinoza's perspective is what he calls God or nature. 
So he doesn't care which word you use, but when he uses the word God, you shouldn't think of a man out in the sky. Uh, when he uses the word God, you should think of what he calls natura naturans, which is the dynamic creativity of nature. And nature is a singular reality, God is a singular reality of which you and I and everything else is a part, the interdependent web of all being. The web itself is God. So, Spinoza says, the highest way of knowing, the most transformative way of knowing, is your own intuitive awakening. That's what Buddha had. Now, I'm arguing this, not these guys. I would say that's what happened to Buddha. He sat, he thought, something shattered, you know, all the stuff he was taught from tradition <clears throat> went away, and all of his rational arguments went away, and he was left with capital T truth through his own intuitive awakening. So I asked Christian about that. I'm just talking about the Buddha, not Spinoza. And he said, he, he didn't buy it. He wanted revelation. He wanted what Spinoza would consider the least reliable source of truth to be the most reliable source of truth. Which brings me to the principles. So, you can look at these in the, you know, the, the handout, but, but in the, in the uh, hymnal, We've got the first one, the inherent worth and dignity of every human person, justice, equity, compassion, and human relationships. Um, and then the last one, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Well, let's say a committee gets together and they are, okay, well, we need seven principles. Well, first they're going to spend three years going, why not five? Because right? <laughs> it's a committee. But they come up with, you know, they settle on seven, and then they come up with the seven. Where do they come from? In the source paragraph, which is the next paragraph, the very first thing that's listed as the source, I would say, for the principles is the direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to renewal of the spirit and openness to the forces that create and uphold life. The next one is words and deeds. Right? The next one is Spinoza's tradition. Uh, down the bottom, you have humanistic teaching, so maybe you could say that's reason. But the most important one, the very first thing listed, <clears throat> is direct experience. The principles in, in the living tradition is rooted, are rooted in, not consciously, in Spinoza's teaching that the most important thing is your own your own intuitive awakening. And when you awaken, you awaken to the interdependent web of all existence of which we and everything else on the planet is a part. And from that awakening comes the ethic of universal justice and compassion for people of all kinds and for animals of all kinds and insects and birds and fish, etc. For the entire planet. It's not... It's axiomatic. When you have the awakening that everything is interconnected, even if you don't believe in God, now you can go back to enlightened self-interest. But the self in self-interest is the capital S self. 
that's awake to the interdependent web of all existence. Right? You follow that? You have that awakening, and then you can't harm another being. I mean, you do, because you fall from the big S self to the little S, the little S self of the ego. But when you're truly rooted in that direct experience of the transcending mystery and wonder that is reality, you can only act kindly, compassionately, justly, etc. That's the core. And you don't need God to do it. Now, Christian Smith wasn't going there. He didn't like it. But he's not here. <laughs> so I'm suggesting, and here's the way I'm going to end this with a question for a second. If all we have in the Unitarian Universalist Association are the statement of principles and then the inherited notion of direct experience and not the direct experience itself, then we've fallen from the highest way of knowing, direct experience, intuition, to Spinoza's lowest way of knowing, inherited knowing. The question I want to leave you with, and, then, and I can't answer, you have to tell me later. <laughs> the question is, what is the way that Unitarians have the direct experience? Is there a Unitarian practice for awakening to direct experience? I mean, Buddhists have that, and different religions have that. Is there a way for you to awaken to the direct experience? And then from there, you'll get the principles. And that's what I want to talk about later. Thank you.